Today we're joined by K.K. Downing, founding guitarist of heavy metal legends Judas Priest. I have been looking forward to having the opportunity to do this interview. Uh, K.K., thanks for joining us today. I, before we turned on the recorder, we were just having a quick chat. Uh, it's about midday uh, over there on, on Thursday. Uh, are, is it Friday over there as well at the moment? Yes, it's Friday, uh, about midday, and um, yeah, thanks a lot for the call, and uh, it's great to uh, reach out and be able to uh, uh, communicate uh, again with, uh, with our audience down under. <laughs> yes, perfect. It's, uh, it's been a while. Um, so you're doing a lot of media right now around your, your autobiography, Heavy Duty, uh, Days and Nights. You left Judas Priest in 2011. So why did you feel now was the time to release a, a book about your time with the band? Um, well, I guess 2011, you know, um, the years went by and we're in, well, pretty close to 2019 now, aren't we? So I guess obviously there was no intention or inclination uh, at the beginning as the years went by. I thought, do you know what? Time's not exactly on anybody's side really in these days. So um, I just thought that um, it would be um, kind of, now or never really because you never know something could happen next year and I might not have the time to do something um, you know or anything could happen you know so um, and, and these things t do take quite a long time I was you know I wasn't sure um, but probably took the best part of um, a year really from beginning to uh, to end um, so uh, quite a lot of um, things have to go into it so um, yeah I just thought that, as we say, um, never put off till t till tomorrow what you can do today. They say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'll jump. There, there's a few other things we're going to ask, but we're already sort of into there. So, you know, this book was co-written with author Mark um, uh, Eglinton. Eglinton yeah. So, when you decide that you want to, you know, put together an autobiography, how does the writing process work between you know your memories as a musician and and his ability to you know spin that into something compelling on paper? Yeah. Well, we had an initial meet. Um, I guess another reason for choosing Mark, he's actually in the UK, even though he's a long way from, well, not not by Australian terms, but he's uh, he's up in Scotland, so um, it's about a five-hour drive, something like that. But so we had an, an initial beer and a meet and a chat and stuff like that um, at some length, and a couple of more meetings um, to get uh, to kickstart everything, and then we did a lot of stuff by phone, you know, with Skype and that, where where kind of um, Mark decided really the best place to start is at the beginning. So um, we kind of work, worked through everything pretty much chronologically because that's how life goes, isn't it? You know, and um, but it was pretty cool because, um, you know, I kind of liked the idea of, um, you know, I, I, between myself and the band and obviously all the fans, it's been a long journey. We've we've been on together, you know, quite a few decades. Um, so I just uh, kind of fancied the idea of, of introducing myself a little bit more to, to the fans that, have, uh, that know me as KK up there on the stage through the albums and everything, get to know the person a little bit and, um, and how it kind of, um, how, how my involvement came to fruition really in the in the 60s and um 
and uh, and obviously I told the story in the book. Obviously, getting off to a a pretty r- r- bad start in life, how I actually managed to get onto the world's biggest stages, and I just thought I wanted to tell that story really. And and so where did that come from? Because there was a previous incarnation before Judas Priest was Judas Priest. So how did it become Judas Priest, and and where does that actual band name come from? Yeah, well, so I, I quickly in a nutshell, I went to I think it was my a, a school concert, you know, and there's a blues group playing there, and you know, and all the girls and guys were trying to dance to this group, which was a total idea. Um, and they were called, uh, I think they were called the Jug Band, you know, that was kind of a popular blues name in the old days. And uh, and um, and they had a singer um, called Al, At- Al Atkins, and I thought the band were pretty cool, you know, kind of. Uh, but the, the, the guitar player was a young lad who was just 18, had a tragic, um, well, in actual fact, he, um, I think he actually drove the group's van into a telephone kiosk and uh, and he died, you know. Um, so it was all very tragic. But the, the band dis- disbanded. And uh, the bass player and the singer, uh, Brian and Al, they got together and they decided they were going to form a new band. Now this would be, I don't know, 68, something like that. 60, I don't know. Um, it was such a long time ago. <laughs> um, so they were going to form a new band and they were looking for a guitar player. And um, I don't know how I got to find out about it. I've got no idea. But anyway, I went round to their house and auditioned and didn't get the job because they were looking for pretty much a blues player, which what I would I would already, I, in my own mind, I'd, I'd gone past that, you know, because I was listening to Hendrix and uh, The Cream and, you know, more progressive blues artists, you know. and um, And so I was kind of into more, you know, diverse, long improvisations, solos and stuff like that. So so that didn't happen, but they went on to form a band called Judas Priest and they hired another guitar player. And I think they were together for not quite a year, I don't think. And then they disbanded. And, um, and um, the story goes, I think, around about the time of excellent album. Well, I think it was Bob Dylan's first album, or very close to it, one of the albums. There was a song on there called Frankie Lane and Judas Priest. So I think that's where the guys had the name from, um, which was super, super cool, you know, because I'd heard the name Judas Priest. I actually saw it spray-painted on the side of an old van, you know, right. driving through the house in estate, and I'm thinking... I tell the story in the book, you know, I'd give anything to be in that van. There's this long-haired dude, you know, I had long hair as well, driving the van, you know. And uh, I thought, I want to be in that van, I want to be in that van. Uh, So later, uh, the two guys came and and they were watching just myself, Ian, and a drummer uh, doing all of our improvisations. And uh, and Al said, can I join the band? And, and 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 we said, yeah, great. But we, you know, we've got to keep the name Judas Priest because it's so cool, and that's. But that was all before electricity, I think, Jess. <laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more because I got into the band into the um, into the the mid to later nineties, and we'll talk about that in a second. But um, with with the publicity that you're doing um, at the moment and all the interviews, uh, the question has come up again of why you had left the band. And uh, as we mentioned before, we turn on the recorder. Um, you, you're gradually providing a further and further insights to this without 
I guess, starting a, a war of words. And from what I'm starting to gather is, is there ultimately was a bit of a split between yourself and the other guitarist, Glenn, tipped into sort of where it reached a point where you felt that you had just had enough and decided to walk away. Is is that fair to sort of say, I guess, what was the crux uh, of the argument uh, at the point in time? Yeah, there was no particular argument as such. Um, like, like I said, the parts to the book is pretty cool. As I say, I started at the beginning telling the story of me as a young lad, but basically with uh, no hope of uh, doing anything, I think, really. But I cut free and became a free spirit at the age of 15, and uh, and I found music. And, you know, like I say, I wanted to tell that story, the transition into and also how metal was made. And, and I get into kind of uh, a lot of stuff that the fans, I'm sure, would like to know about, really. Um, a little bit inside look at Judas Priest and how it all happened and worked and the fun bits and the, and the not-so-fun bits and everything. And, and as you say, later on, I kind of... Because it's, it's not one kind of quick fix, this is what happened. You know, we had an argument one day, and so I jumped ship. It was... It was kind of uh, over a long, long, lengthy period of time because, you know, relationships, you know, can get strained, can't they? You know, whether it's uh, husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, so you know, uh, at work, at school, you know, it's it's tough to it's tough to be um, to- in total harmony. Um, I think it's etched in stone, isn't it? I mean. Uh, Dokken have just got back together after 20 That's years, right. you know, yeah. Ax- Axel Rose leaves every week or something and comes <laughs> back, you know, Rob left the band for 14 years and came back and, you know, it is, you know, somebody has a wobble and, uh, you know, and Machine Heads, they've just gone, oh, that's it, you know. Yeah, a cu- couple of them are leaving now as well, Phil Demmel's leaving, that's right, yes. So, but that'll get fixed again, I mean, you know, but like I say, and all the fans are going, no, you can't do this, the band is perfect as it is, you guys have just got a hug and kiss, up, kiss you know, and um, and I think that's what happened to me, you know, I was a big Hendrix fan, and when Hendrix said, that's it, Noel Red and Mitch Mitchell, you're out, I'm moving on, I'm going, oh, no, no, you can't, This I've bought into this, this is really, you know, what you know, um, you guys, my heroes. You know, not just one person, but it's the band. You know that because I am a music fan. It's the band. It's the band name and what the band stands for. You know, um, you know, and um, and, and that um, that um, is just something that's like undeniable and um, and has to go on and. Um, and so it was a, a long series of things that, that that happen, you know, that go forward, and um, and you have to uh, just go with it. And uh, you know, if I can put it in a nutshell, I mean, um, a band is a collection of several guys, and no, <laughs> you quickly learn that no no two people on the planet are the same. Yes, you know, everybody everybody's so eclectic. Um, and so you have guys with, you know, uh, a bit stronger minded, stronger characters, other guys, more placid, more tolerant, you know, um, you get, you know, but in the early days, you know, um, there's no spoils to split up. You know, you're all there in the trenches. Um, you're all equal. There is no money. There is no fame, no success. You've got nothing to, def- you've got nothing to, you know, want to grab an extra piece of. 
Um, but eventually, you know, you climb the ladder, you know, uh, you start to get bigger, you know, more successful. And um, I think it's fair to say, you know, it wasn't a bad situation in Judas Priest. I mean, we, we, we stood the test of time much longer than a lot of other bands. So it wasn't that bad, but it, it wasn't without, you know, um, you know, um, the inevitable pecking order arises and uh, you've got the, um, you know, certain, you know, egos, whether whether they're obvious or not, you know, things happen, you know, and you be, you start to have an awareness of that and, and you go with it. Some people go with it. I mean, you know, um, and, um, but, you know, after a long, long period of time, you know, it's not so bad. Like I say, when you're riding the crest of a wave and it, and, it, and it's all good and you're flying around, you you kept so busy. But after kind of uh, 40 years, you know, um, and things seem to be kind of slowing down and not quite what they were, you know, it becomes a lot uh, lot harder. Certain things become a lot harder to uh, tolerate and, you know, um, and, and and they start to magnify themselves a little bit, you know. Um, and, and I think I do square it up in the book that probably nobody's fault in particular because everybody, as, Fra- as Frankie says, everybody does it kind of their way, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> so it's not it's not for me to say, hey, you can't, you know, you can't do this on stage or you can't do this before you go on. Because it's rock and roll, you know. But um, if it didn't suit me uh, at a certain time, you know, um, as I said before, Lots of band members make decisions, whether they're snap decisions, regrettable decisions, or whatever it is. Certain points, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back at the time, and that's kind of what happens, really. Jeff. So, so do you maintain any relationship with any of the guys these days? Then, no, I had, I had, but just recently, the last uh, year or two, it seems to have gone even a bit more kind of strained and a bit quirky. Obviously, lots of things. Um, uh, uh, get out on the internet, which get which get augmented, really. Yeah, you know, um, I do an interview like if I do an interview with you today, speaking to the all, all the fans in Australia. You know, it's quite easy to pick up one thing that I said, change a few words, put it on blabbermouth, and all the fans think, "Oh, KK's phoned up blabbermouth, and he said this." He's going off, <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and it's just something I could say in a light-hearted, you know. Um, conversation that just kind of gets a bit twisted and that, you know, and then that causes a reaction from someone else. So it, it's it's kind of um, kind of all happens like that. It's almost like, um, I don't know, verging on a, I don't know, can I use the word like a, like like propaganda in the Second World War or something, <laughs> yes. you know. It, it just, um, you have to combat these things and it's kind of all a bit strange, but um, well, I want to ask you, you know, um, after you leave a band like, like Judas Priest, you know, we hear about things like the cult of celebrity and how there's oftentimes a lot of hangers on, you know, with people who are successful, particularly within the entertainment industry. Um, obviously, your life would have changed after you left the band. Did, did you have a difficult time, I guess, um, coming back to uh, normalcy, I suppose I'll call it? Yeah, Yes and no, really, because I think um, for someone like me that had been who I was for so long in the band that I was with, it was um, 
there was always a lot of things happening and still is, you know, because um, quite quickly, you know, for example, you know, uh, the world becomes aware, OK, he's not in Priest any, uh, any longer. Maybe we can form a band with him or get him to play on our album and stuff like that, you know. So lots of so-called propositions or requests or favours, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I, I did the odd thing, you know, here, here and there. Um, kept pretty busy, um, just as favours, really. Um, you know, uh, n- never a money thing. I mean, my good buddy Les Binks, great drummer, obviously was with us in the 70s, just called up recently and said he would like to record, re-record Beyond the Realms of Death, which he was instrumentally in writing that song. And, um, and so I said, yeah, Les, um, you know, send me the files over. <clears throat> And so, uh, so we did that, you know, and so I've kind of always kept my hand in, you know, and, um, but obviously I run my website, which is like a big fanzine as well, out of Helsinki, that's run by fans, kkdowning.net, a bit of a plug there if nobody knows about that, but, but check it out because it's not all about me, it's just like a big fanzine run by fans and, and that's the way I wanted to do it, so, and that keeps me pretty busy as well, really. Um, questions and answers. I did that for many years with all of the fans staying in touch. So, you know, even though I've not been in the band for like seven to getting on for eight years, it's like, it actually is like I've never left. To be fair, <laughs> I've always been a part of it. Um, but as, as I say, my departure is one of those things, probably, you know, nobody's fault, a bit like the Titanic, you know, I mean, Nobody's fault, but everybody played a part in it, and it, the, the ship went down, you know. Um, so, but as I do maintain, and I always will, what uh, whatever happened in the past, or whatever is happening now, or whatever will happen in the future, you know, I do state that I have total respect for all of my bandmates because we uh, we shared an awful lot together. It was a long journey. Uh, we fought a lot of battles. We had immense success you know and um and we did literally live a life together because we would uh, spend uh, more time with each other than we ever did with our families girlfriends wives and kids or whatever to be fair many times it was like that so you can imagine how it kind of got but um you know so um i, I would like to think that uh, you know it has to be reciprocated really and you know i mean I say that because, you know, it was kind of, um, it was a lifetime that we spent together and it was successful and we can't complain and we certainly couldn't have done it without each other is what I think I certainly couldn't have done it without uh, uh, the rest of the guys in the band. Okay. Um, you had mentioned uh, Les Binks before and it's um, it's a good segue because I wanted to ask, you know, Judas Priest has a bit of a... Um Spinal Tap relationship with its drummers. It's why was it so hard to fill that role permanently? I think there was about you know ten ten guys that were on the kit um, in the band. Yeah, don't know why that is. You know, I really don't know. Um, it's um, it's um, you know some some of the guys. I don't know why uh, they departed. You know, some of the guys. You know, I do. Um, you know, um, I mean, Dave Holland, bless him, you know, he just came off stage one night and said that, um, 
you know, he wasn't happy with uh, the performance and he was leaving. And um, and that was it, really. You know, um, don't really mean, you know, that's kind of what happened. And he, and he left. Um, we had one drummer uh, who was very good, our very first drummer, very good friend of mine, John Ellis, you know, which he, he probably is unknown, but... Uh, he he left because his girlfriend told him he had to. <laughs> I think that was, you know. Um, so so these things do happen, you know. Guys, uh, you know, lots of reasons why guys uh, leave bands. Um, um, you know, Al Atkins and our drummer Chris Congo, who I mentioned in the book. You know, great guys, but they had to leave because they couldn't sustain life without without some money coming in. You know, so um, that was another drummer gone. Um, so that's kind of the way that it's been, really. And the other thing, you know, we're both talking blabbermouth, and, and I remember a few years ago there was a story uh, that came out about Dave Holland, and as you had mentioned him, and he was, you know, for for people that don't know, he was he was a, the the drummer who was around during this '80s period where you guys were absolutely enormous, and uh, he was ended up being found guilty of a sexual assault apparently on a boy. And the only thing I could find about it on Wikipedia was that he was adamant about his innocence but that he also then came out as bisexual was there was any of this behavior evident during the years that he was in the band with you guys no no, absolutely not not at all you know um absolutely not you know i can state that categorically um so it was a massive you know when obviously we heard the news it was a massive surprise Um, you know but but you know, having said that, I mean, we've been in courtrooms as a band being accused of horrendous things, you know, and it was all rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd love to talk about that. I've got, got, got a few notes so, on yeah, that. I yeah. mean, but, you know, lots of, you know, um, I have an awareness that lots of things happen in courtrooms. I've been in courtrooms and I've been astonished at um, p- people um, that, but that actually tell lies in the courtroom that they shouldn't tell lies to <laughs> legal people, you know, and it's absolutely, you know, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I always agreed with my gran, oh, yeah, that should bring back hanging, bring back <laughs> corporal punishment, you know, yeah. because when I was kind of growing up, I think, I think the world's too, the world's gone too soft, you know, yeah. it's like... You know, you read in the paper some guys rape this girl or something, and he gets like probation. three months suspended probation or something. <laughs> you know, it's it's up, it's um, it's it's crazy what happens. You know, um, but as I've traversed through my life and gone through ordeals and circumstances I've been through, I, I'm, I've totally changed my tune because now. I know why they, hanging was abolished, you know, because corporal punishment. A lots of innocent people have certainly gone free, and lots of guilty. I know lots of guilty people have certainly gone free, and vice versa, you know. Um, so um, we have to err on the side of caution. But my own take on it is, Dave was a, fan, a you know really great guy, fantastic chap, and um, great drummer, very integral part of Judas Priest. And, um, you know, so much so that what he meant to me, you know, as an individual uh, and as a friend, you know, um, you know, I prefer to uh, um, to to take his word on, on what the situation was, because we had been in 
started for, you know, stuff that we hadn't done because when you're a certain profile of a person and people think there's plenty of money around, it's amazing what comes out of the woodwork and has a go at you, you know. So, uh, again, when so when this trial happened, I think it was 1990, if if I'm not mistaken, and uh, for people that are listening that, that, that don't know this, this was sort of a, it was a massive milestone at that point in time because effectively... Uh, it was a case against your right to free speech and being an artist in music. And there were two young men who committed suicide while listening to Stained Class, which is one of your albums. And then you guys were effectively put on trial for subliminal, uh, do you want to call them satanic messages within within the the albums? And they were trying to sue you, um, uh, not, not criminally, but to uh, yeah, gain money out of you. Is that effectively... Uh, you know, what was happening? How, how did this sort of play out during that time? Well, <clears throat> well yeah, let's backtrack just a, a little bit there. These guys were, as, as stated, uh, listening to staying class, is what they said. And how do we know that? Well, we were told that um, when um, whoever it was went into uh, the one guy's uh, with the one uh, teenager's bedroom, that staying class was on the turntable. So this is what we were told. But do we really know that? It seems a little bit kind of incredible that, uh, oh, there's the record. We'll listen to that and we'll find a subliminal message. I mean, that's a long shot. That's winning the lottery, isn't it, for some lawyer who wants mm. to make some, some cash. Yes. So, so... No, that that's a tall order. I'm afraid that's what I think. So, so how lo- how long did this trial get brought out though? Because it, it, it was a it was a significant story at the time. Yeah, but lots of things were leading up to it. I think yes, really, because obviously certain people were already having a go at um, at uh, you know what we were doing. You know, in rock and metal. I mean, Ozzy. I think he almost. You know, he, he was almost dragged to the court a couple of times, you know, for a suicide solution because of the lyrics and stuff. There was the PRMC having a go at, you know, our, our genre. And, um, was D. Snyder a few years before, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all of that was going on. So I think somebody had to, um, you know, uh, at some point it was bound to happen and it was probably going to be either Ozzy or Judas Priest, I think, let's face it, I think, you know, <laughs> the most likely candidates. So again, it's it's a big question mark there, you know, uh, okay, it's Judas Priest this time, but, um, but obviously um, the, um, when we look back through the evidence and all of the testimony in that court case, the, the two lads you know, and, and, and another another reason for me telling the story in the book, really, because that could have happened to me if I didn't get out, you know, at a certain age and I escaped that life, you know. Um, you know, the family, you know, disconnected family. I mean, the, the parents had um, racked up, I think, five divorces between them. The one lad used to get, the, the dad used to lock him in the garage and beat him with a leather strap and all of these things going on in these teenagers lives um but they had passed the surpassed the age of 15 they were still there through the most influential lives and, and things were probably building up you know um the one guy just got fired and got into an argument with his boss there's lots of things going on in their lives 
and um, and it was a spontaneous thing that they did, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a tragic story. But I guess someone had to, um, you know, uh, do what we did, uh, which was go there, defend and stand our ground, and and rebut the whole thing, which was a bit ridiculous. Um, and unfortunately, hopefully that you know created steadied the the ship for forevermore, and it seems like it did the trick because um, our music, you know, and all the guys, that, uh, all the people that create this this great music that we love, um, have been left alone since that case. So thumbs up there. So you, you talked about um, not only your your own upbringing, but a lot of bands who developed this sound. You know, as we've talked about, metal inherently came from the blues sound. But you also talk about these boys in the trial. Is there heavy metal as a genre? It's inherently working class and blue collar, and it hasn't seemed to have you know risen up between those uh, you know hard lifestyle. Do you think that's why it's sort of? Is there? Do you have a, a belief of why it's entrenched within that sort of social demographic? Yeah, I think you know. Um, well, certainly from my own part, you know, um, kind of when I was younger, um, I kind of, I kind of, it was, I kind of had the inkling that 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 you know. But music, because I was struggling to listen and find things that I liked, you know. Uh, my sisters were listening to Elvis and the Beatles and the Beach Boys and all of that, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, I wasn't particularly looking, but I'm thinking there's nothing for me really to listen to. That, You know, until I started, until I had an awareness of certain things, there were certain things that I heard when I was very young, like in 1964, 65, The Kinks, I heard they had a hit song called You Really Got Me. Um, and I thought, I like that. You know, I can listen to that. I like that. Um, and, and um, you know, uh, I mentioned in the book the, the uh, protest song by Barry Maguire, Eva Destruction. I thought, I like that. You know, um, don't know why I like that, but I like that. Um, and then... When I certainly when I heard when I first heard Hendrix and saw him in 1967, that to me was the first time, you know, that I really think that I had this sort of awareness of uh, of what we know now as like heavy metal, really, because it wasn't blues, it wasn't progressive blues. I was hearing something, you know, within some of the songs that was different to me, you know, and. Um, and so I set on my quest, really, um, when I started, you know, to write material at the age of, I don't know, 17, 18 or something. I was thinking of this, don't know, I don't ask you why, but, you know, dark, moody, you know, something that's meaningful, you know, you know, good lyrics, you know, some meaningful lyrics, meaningful, you know, emotional kind of energy in the music and um and I guess I was always thinking that there was kind of, because we had the wonderful blues music, you know, coming over from the States and in mass, and I loved that as well. But I wasn't really, I didn't want to, you know, walk that path. You know, I thought there was more to be had. So I was always, you know, pushing forward, and that's always the way that I was. Essentially creating what, what I would have to say was... <clears throat> The working class white white kids blues, you know music, 
something <clears throat> different, but with as much help and meaning, you know, for young white kids like me, really, to be fair. Um, that's what I think, and that's what, that, that was the quest I was on. And, and that was always in my mind, right until the very end, you know, because it, when I would sit down and do something from my inner sanctum, my soul, musically, it had to have some passion and meaning and, and, and you know, and um, something that certain people could relate to. And obviously, being a, coming from a working-class background, that was all I knew. So I was giving everything that I did. You know, um, getting everything up to people like myself. And so, what uh, changed? Because in you know, British Steel became this really sort of genre-defining album that that broke out for you guys. But uh, there, there was about four or five albums before this, uh, and and you've sort of you've I've read you've publicly said on record like British Steel is the first heavy metal album. So, what do you? How do you perceive the band before that time? No. No, I think um, what I said or what I actually meant or either, um, I think British Steel was the, the album that that eventually consolidated everything, you know, um, within the band Judas Priest. because And everything lead before that was slowly kind of evolving towards that pinnacle point in late 79, uh, 1980, I think, because, and the reason I say that is because, you know, we as Judas Priest, we were, we did from the get-go, we were kind of, um, we ha- we were different, you know, um, obviously we needed to be to, you know, if we were going to be successful, you need to be, you know, you can't be a copy of anything else, so, but we were evolving, going through the motions. We were, you know, the music. A lot of it was kind of dark, moody. Obviously, it was meaningful, and um, and and <clears throat> and, um, and so we we traversed and we did what we did. We had a great name for the band. You know, we had a great lineup, musicians, and we had you know a lot of great material. But sometime in the seventies, seventy around about seventy six, I think. It was just apparent that we didn't look quite right. Is what you know. We didn't look like who we were and what we wanted to be. Really, um, but again, nobody's fault. It was just the fact that uh, the story I tell is the fact when I was, my, when I was young and my sisters were listening to all of the bands I mentioned before. A lot of those bands were had a uniform look like the Beatles, the Mersey Beats, Jerry and the Pacemaker, all of that stuff. Same haircut, same clothes. So it's not surprising that all of the blues artists and the progressive blues bands and, uh, you know, <clears throat> and everybody that came, you know, uh, even later on, you know, including Hendrix, The Cream, Led Zeppelin, whoever it was, everyone had their own kind of individual kind of uh, clothes in a way that they looked as an individual artist. And so it was something you gave a wide berth to, really, or everybody walking on there with the same clothes. You probably wouldn't even yeah. think about <laughs> you know, Judas Priest going on there with the same, you know, all wearing a, a suit or something with a, and a tie and all having the same. But 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 then kind of the penny dropped a little bit, and I thought to myself, do you know what? We do need a uniform. You know, I know bands don't do it, but Judas Priest need to do it. And I'm thinking, and it needs to be black. 
Okay. Yeah. Black is the colour for what we do. It has to be, you know. Uh, but if we all wear black, will people see us from st- from off the stage, you know? Um, okay, so what, you know, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, we'll, we'll add some add some metal, shiny stuff on there, you know, studs and that, you know. And, and um, so... So basically, that's what I did, you know, and there's some pictures in the book that illustrate that, you know, with just me. Um, but I mean, I, was, I looked the same as the other guys, really, prior to prior to that decision, pretty much in, you know, we had, we had silks and satins, they would be pink, green, cream, yellow, you know. Um, so it, it was something, something had to change, and it had to change now. Um, and so I thought that I went that route and in hope that the rest of the guys would kind of literally follow suit. So I had a chat with Rob, I had a chat with Rob and we went and got some clothes made and for a while just myself and Rob had, you know, uh, had that look. And then very quickly, say by British Steel, you know, everything came together with that album, great album sleeve, um, you know, really cool songs. We were happy with the album, great name for the band. And we got this look even, you know, and I call it a uniform look because it was across the board leather and studs, you know, uh, with different designs. But it pulled, you know, consolidated everything and um, and and the rest is history, really. You know, full on metal was uh, was born right there and then. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. So maybe I've taken that out of context because it sounds like you're referring to heavy metal as its as its look and feel, I suppose you can say, because... There's been um I've I've tried to read a lot of information of when heavy metal actually became heavy metal and nobody can seem to create a defining point. There's all this sort of mixture between Zeppelin to Black Sabbath. A lot of people say it was Sabbath's yeah. self-title album, but um or you know even uh, leading on to MC5 who brought in like this really heavy blues sound. But um you know when when you talk about British steel in this particular light as you're doing, it's fascinating to me because I know um I think Carrie King from Slayers on record saying Judas Priest's favorite band, and he continues to carry that look. I remember, um, you know, Dimebag Daryl had the razor blade necklace that he always wore on stage with him. So, you know, the the, the particular influence of that album and time is uh, it's clearly carried around to a lot of the bands who I think are the pinnacle of heavy metal from my generation. Yeah. Um... Like I say, when it comes to heavy metal, I was there at the very beginning, you know, and, and I've mentioned some of the the embryos that, in my opinion, um, fed and sowed the seed in, in within me. You know, I, I could mention some other songs where I, maybe not complete songs, maybe you know, but to me, if it if it had a meaning to me, if it was just a riff or a song you know, or something. I mean, there was some very early Rolling Stone stuff, you know, that was kind of appealing to me because it was raw edge. The guys looked, the guys didn't look clean cut like the Beatles and everything. It was more along the lines of a little bit of look and a little bit of sound. But essentially what appealed to me was songs that weren't 12 bars. They weren't chord sequences. Those songs that really were based around a riff when, yeah. I, when I mentioned you really got me, you know, it doesn't fit into blues, doesn't fit into pop. It's not a chord sequence. You know, it's it's the embryo of heavy metal, you know, and that's what... I, and, and, and great that Van Halen came out and, 
and did it, you know, when I say heavy metal, I mean, it's all encompassing, you know, the evolution, rock, heavy rock, heavy metal, you know, a lot of that kind of goes together, you know. Um, when when you talk about it, it's, it's interesting to me because going back to those sorts of early records, that, that sort of sound or that... Um, you know, I, uh, you know, a lot of the interviews you guys are defined by sort of that highway sound. And when I go back to those records from around the seventies, there's only a couple songs that I really define. One was Sabbath's Children of the Grave, and you know, when you talk about British Steel, I, I distinctly remember Rapid Fire as almost being like one of the first sort of thrash heavy metal songs that you could define as. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I think there was quite a lot of stuff before that you know i mean i can remember when i when when i first heard the sabbath album obviously i became a fan later on and i thought great you know somebody's doing something that is you know along the lines of what i said obviously we as judas priest were playing you know we came out with our record you know not too long after that but we were out there on the road playing our songs and playing stuff like Victim Changes, it's had a name change, but the song was pretty much the same. You know, so we were playing stuff like that and songs like Run of the Mill, you know, and um, Never Satisfied and stuff like that. We were playing all of that stuff, which was different, you know. I mean, I have to commend Sabbath. They came out with, there was a few bands doing something um, along those lines, you know, um, at the time. Um you know, so it was it was great, and it just kind of um, that actually kind of uh, confirmed that what I was thinking in my mind, you know, um, was was right really that that there is new stuff to be had. You know, there is there is new, you know, that there are new directions that that bands can go. You know, um, I mean, I probably mentioned the band Quatermass, for example, in the book. You know, they were a three-piece, you know, without a guitar player. But a lot of stuff they did, to me, you know, was dark, meaningful. It wasn't blues, it wasn't pop, it wasn't chord sequences. There was a lot of keyboard riffage in there, you know. Um, so um, so it was that type of thing, you know. Um, and then, but it was wonderful times. Everything, the whole music was just evolving in so many ways. I mean, it was great when uh, when I first heard. Sorry, D- D- Deep Purple, for example, they were creating songs that exactly they weren't twelve bars. They weren't necessarily based around chord sequences, and they certainly weren't pop, jazz, or, or anything else. So straight away, how great was that? You know, uh, Deep Purple in Rock was a, a tremendous album. <clears throat> As um as originators of of heavy metal, uh, one of the it, as, as a genre, it has continued to evolve probably more than any other form of music because heavy metal is meant to be heavy. So everyone's trying to get to being heavier uh, through its evolution. Are are you a fan, or do you follow you know any of the subgenres across thrash or black or death or grind or anything that's that's come out of Judas Priest? Um, well, yes. Of course, obviously, because I'm aware of uh, there's a lot of great bands, isn't there? Like that have come out of what we know, what we call now classic metal, and I guess that's the the the, the uh, category that Judas Priest fall into now. Because um, you know, we we took things a step further than you know 
and then inevitably someone has to take over and it's like anything else really that's why you know um <laughs> televisions have got thinner and uh mobile phones have got smaller and you know it's it's the way of the world it's things have to keep moving and because you can't keep reinventing the wheel you know we can't expect uh, teenagers of today um to be able to come up with something brand new where there were so many of us you know kind of squeezing the sponge as hard as we could back in the 70s the 80s the 90s you know and probably still today so um if people can put an, uh, a different twist on it um and create something new because that's what we had to do as Judas Priest we couldn't be you know um we couldn't be a mimic of uh, of another band and and that's why it's gone as it has um, and inevitably, a lot of good stuff comes out. out you know, so as well, we've got the Metallicas, the uh, Machine Heads, uh, the uh, Megadeth, and um, you know, uh, and uh, and like you say, the Slayers um, of the world, and uh, and that can only be positive. Mm, okay, um, I want to take you back. We talked about this very briefly when when I was in my teens. That you know, we're talking about. Uh, roughly about the mid '90s, the the band gets back together, and you reform with uh, Tim Owens, who I believe is playing in a cover band at that point in time. And and um, you know when when Halford comes back into the fold a few a few years later, um, oftentimes his role in the reformation of Priest is is overlooked. Um, but those are the you know outside of like the greatest hits packages. That's the time that I got into Priest. What do you remember about his time with the band and, and how that changed the dynamic? Yeah, well, you know, we were kind of in a situation, Rob had decided to go it alone, and, and then after that, you know, it was, everything was in suspension, really, because then, you know, pretty much right away, Glenn had, well, I'd, well I think just before, uh, I think Glenn was going to do his solo stuff, I think, um, I think he was planning to do uh, just before Rob left, but so um, Rob left, so Glenn thought it's an opportunity for him to do his couple of albums and stuff like that, playing with other musicians, and um, and um, so we just kind of um, you know sat and waited to see what was going to happen. We knew it was going to be a tall order to find someone that could do what Rob did, you know, and and we knew it was going to be an even taller order to get people to accept that person, you know, if and when we found him. So it was going to take time, you know, uh, I guess. Um, so um, obviously we heard about Ripper and um, we thought that, uh, yeah, he's young and strong, you know, and we flew him to England and he was just incredible. You know, obviously he's an incredible vocalist. Um, in fact, he just... Uh, Texted me last night. I don't know. He's somewhere in Europe. There. He's out there oh, with yeah. the three tremors. Okay. Uh, the, the three tremors. So yeah, he's uh, he's out there playing gr- Greece and Germany and all of those places. So um, yeah, so he's having some fun out there doing doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was great. I think you know, um, and, um, and and we were fine with that because we knew that he. His capabilities were sensational, and he was a great guy, and and, we, and and a good fun addition, and fun and serious addition to to the band. 
Um, and we now refer to those years as the Ripper years and uh, with lots of uh, fondness. And, uh, and it did help us um, to get, get over that um, issue that we had at, at the time. The, the the couple albums that that he did with the group, as you said, it's hard for a lot of people to accept uh, someone coming into the band, especially when they're not, you know, the known frontman. Uh, because the albums weren't as commercially successful at the time, was there any you know doubt in your mind or the band's mind of moving forward with him if that was going to be the case? Had had Rob not come back into the fold? I think that um, that's a good question. Actually, um, I guess it's only because of the fact that. There was an opportunity um, that I became aware of that Rob would come back, you know, um, um, that that led to him him actually returning, you know. Um, so, but if that if that opportunity hadn't have been there and Rob w- w- didn't show. Um, you know, that it was possible for him to return, then we would have inevitably have continued for sure um, because we would we would have to. We were still, I think, a really excellent band with Ripper. Uh, I know it wasn't the original trademark lineup, obviously, without Rob, um, so it was difficult, but... Who knows, you know, um, standing the test of time, um, I think we would have uh, gone on to uh, do really quite well. Why not? Because we were still, the rest of the band was the same. And when we did have a fantastic vocalist, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can count on one hand. I think the vocalists are, uh, are, uh, have incredible ranges. And, uh, you know, obviously Rob being one, Ripper certainly, Ralph Shapers from Gamma Ray and etc. Um, um, y- you know, those guys are extraordinary on the planet. I mean, there are some of the vocalists. You know, if I've left anyone, anyone out, I do apologize. But they're, they're not in abundance, these guys. You know, they're, they're certainly not. But at the end of the day, the way I see it as a fan, being as uh, of the age that I am and being there from the beginning, is the fact that. From my experience, we 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 become accustomed as fans to to do accepting that one band, one voice. You know, there are a couple of exceptions. There are a couple of exceptions, but the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, Queen, Freddie Mercury, Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson, Judas Priest, Rob Halford. You know, and that's what we think of, and probably quite rightly, because that's what we buy into as fans. We've been to all the concerts, we've followed the band for all the years, we've bought the T-shirts, we've been we've been fans, we bought the records, you know, and and now you know to get us to accept someone else, you know, uh, singing the songs that someone wrote the lyrics to, and they've been performing for years. It's 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 tough, you know. It's very, very difficult um, for fans to accept, and I understand that completely. So, there uh, in the nineties, I also remember the um, the movie Rockstar with Mark, uh, Mark Wahlberg, and I, I was told, or at least there was a rumor, that that film was sort of based upon um, the experiences of Ripper. Is that is that just industry lore? Did that ever uh, you know cross your desk? No, that's, that's absolutely true. 
Um, it was because um, initially we were going to be involved as a band, um, you know, in that movie. Um, and um, But we didn't feel exactly comfortable, you know, with, with it really because these things, it's so difficult, isn't it? Difficult. Apart from so- Spinal Tap, which we all... We all accept, but yes. but to try to do something seriously, where you know uh, actors try to be rock stars, we felt uncomfortable with that because we don't really think that uh, all, all, all other musicians and, and fans it, it would have to be an amazing production and you know feat to. Uh, to, to to get us to, to for it to be, you know, for us to buy into it really and believe it is what I think. So we we kind of backed away from it, and the guys went uh, in a bit of a different direction and and chose to do it completely with um, actors and, like I say, loosely based it on, um, on on the on on the life story of uh, Ripper. That reminds well, uh, me that um that Kiss made some sort of horrible film in the late seventies or something. Kiss and the Phantom or, or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> so, um, so uh, it, it, you know, it was massive news at the time. Um, you know, outside of guys like Freddie Mercury, uh, Rob Halford came out and. Uh, in an interview, told the world that that he was gay, and this uh, you know came out when again probably around the sort of early early to mid nineties. Um, I assume that you guys were obviously aware of this, but but was there ever a time in the seventies or eighties where he was still in the closet to the band itself? No, absolutely not. No, um, like I say, it was no surprise or any consequence to us because I mean we were young young, young guys when we met and. Um, you know, um, it was, you know, <laughs> just, um, you know, I mean, I think that it wasn't, uh, nothing was a big deal really in the UK because we were pretty, pretty liberal as a country, I think, in respect of things like sexuality. I mean, we're, our our neighbours, Holland, for example, <laughs> had already, already legalised yes. prostitution yeah. and and obviously Sweden, our, our neighbours as well, you know, we've always known how sexually liberated that they've been with their saunas and outside jacuzzis and, and nudism and stuff like that, you know. So, um, no, everything was moving on, you know. Um, you know, even when I was at school, you know, um, you know, um, some of the guys I knew uh, there, you know, were, were gay, my friends. It didn't mean anything because... They, they didn't see. They didn't act or do anything differently. I mean, I, my good friend, I talk about him, Nick, in the book. In fact, I didn't know he was gay until I was about eighteen. Um, but we we had a lot of escapades as a kid, and, and, and Nick was and Nick was pretty. He was a pretty rough kid. He used to get me into a lot of trouble. I can tell you that. You know, um, a lot of things that we did. Um, if you just if ever there was someone that was going to be gay in the world, I, I would never Not have him. Him, Nick. No, no. So so I had this awareness that you know, gay people could be just. You know, um, Nick was a bit more of a criminal than I was, to be honest. You know, yeah. <laughs> juvenile delinquent. Um, so, um, 
So, you know, it was, uh, uh, and of course, Rob never hid anything from anyone. I never saw him hide anything from anyone. Interesting. So at the time then, because until they announced it, you know, and then they said, oh, you know, the, the Judas Priest look of that sort of leather and whips comes from a lot of that, that um, S&M gay culture. So I guess my question is because I, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't really understand it, but were there fans then of Judas Priest at the time that were able to, I guess, sort of see through that thin veil and go, oh, uh, gay fans of the band who would approach Rob before he had come out? Or was that, uh, was it sort of, was it known, I guess, in the the gay scene at that time? It's it's a good question because, you know, I think that, like I said, I was wearing leather and studs. I think there's some footage of us in Japan, you know, and you'll see. You'll see me in the leather choker with studs and uh, and stuff, all in black, you know. And and I don't know how it came about, but anyway, I had the conversation with Rob, and I said, you know, we'll, so we decided to go down to London and have some leather clothes made. And the people that made leather clothes in those days were, in fact, they were, I think they were a gay couple of guys. It was called Mr. S in London was their shop. So we went down there and, um, okay, want some leather clothes made. So um, I had some made, you know, and um, not <laughs> not as a gay man. Yes. I was there as a rock musician. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think I think I was so over the moon because I had them, uh, the clothes made up for um, British Steel. Yes. You know, um, which was... Um, I, which I, I really liked how I looked, you know, what I had made. Um, Rob had some uh, stuff made. And I don't know if he did to start with, you know, but the, the, the kind of archetypal uh, gay leather look, you know, which is like, we remember the song YMCA, for example. Yeah, of course was, you know, do, yeah. guy there on there. Yeah, so, but Rob did adorn that at, at one point. At one point, he thought, I'm going to have that, you know. <laughs> with a bull whip and you know but but robert had to my mind some variations of le- uh leather the leather look before that and after that you know um but when he went for that i just thought it was super cool really and I, what the fans thought i don't know i think some fans didn't have an awareness some fans did um all i can say is the fact that we continue to have uh you know, uh, success after success. Oh, I'm not denying that, but I guess, KK, what I'm sort of asking is that, you know, heavy metal is sort of this, this debaucherous culture. I can assume there, there was many groupies to share around the band during this point in time. So I'm sort what I'm sort of asking is, were the gay community aware that Rob was gay so that he had sort of his own groupies available from town to town at this point in time? I would have, I would have said yes, really. Cause I mean, <laughs> I would have thought, I would have said yes. You know, um, you know, we would do concerts, and there was quite a lot of gay guys would come to the concerts. There's no doubt, you know. But the thing is, these guys also, and now you, now I'm thinking about it, but a lot of the guys would come, you know, in traditional kind of denim and leather look. Yeah. You know, so they were music fans. Yes. They were into the music. Make no bones about that. We have to understand that. In, 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 in the world of metal music, there's an incredible amount of guys and girls 
gay or whatever the you know um, that really love the music, you mm. know, because they're people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> they're you know, I, I don't put anyone down when I say the word ordinary. But what I'm saying is everybody's like-minded. You know, um, I, you know that's what happens. You know, um, because it would be ridiculous to say that gay people don't like fish and chips or something. You know. Oh, that's not what <laughs> I'm implying at all. I'm just saying it would be a shame if you guys. If you guys have a flock of women available to you at every city that you go to on an international tour, and he's he's left out, I guess is what, sort of what I'm getting at. Oh yeah, no, no, it was fun. I mean, we, you know, well, we had Rob had gay friends, and there was you know gay fans that would come on the bus at time to times, hotel rooms. It was just all a mix-up because Rob had to put up with us with girls, right? Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, it has to be given, you know, give and take, and it wasn't a problem anyway. Okay. You know, because um, it was it was all very very good times. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a downside to to anything about what we were doing. And you know, it was just fantastic that everybody and everybody uh, that had a, a set of ears and enjoyed our music and, like I said, the genre of music in general. Uh, everybody was uh, a fan friend, either or both. Okay, and uh, I'm, I'm asking you these questions because you know I, I I I sort of wasn't in the scene or I wasn't old enough to be part of it. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is you talk about you know how long Judas Priest has been around. I was thinking about how much times have changed. I mean, in in effect, Judas Priest is a band that has outlived the Cold War. You know, are there are there any sort of interesting changes historically through time that that I guess you're sort of amazed that, that you've been part of or, or seen you know, through this journey? No, I think that um, lots of people, you know, um, I think asking me questions like, you know, which is your favorite album or your favorite tour or something, you know, because this was different then and you changed and you did this. But uh, I've just asked people to bear in mind the fact that you know, it, it's been a lifetime, you know, and things do change. Lots of things change. Why Why you would change um, things along the way, you know. Um, some people say, why did you do this? And then well, then you did the Turbo album, you changed that, and then you changed again for Ram It Down. Well, you know, we've got years and decades, of, you know, we, we, we're traversing through. Uh, and so it can be lots of things, can't it? Feel-good factor, economy, you know. Uh, MTV uh, is prolific, MTV stops, you know. um, Lots of things happen in a band's career uh, as long as ours. And and I can only put that down to why we see changes, you know. Um, But I think the evolution, like I said, I'm so, so lucky just to have been born in 1951 because I grew up as a kid. Whatever I went through is the fact that, you know, by the time I was 13, a 14, you know, um, we had the Buddy Hollies and the Eddie Cochran's and the Bill Haley's, you know, I don't know much about those people, uh, but I know we had those, but, you know, by the time I was, you know, um, could, um, you know, 13 or 14 be influenced by things, everything started to happen in the pop world, in the blues world, you know, which led on to the rock world. So I was there at the very beginning, and I was actually working at it at the age of, you know, 16. I was, I was, I was actually 
working out. So I'm such an incredibly lucky person to have been born in the, you know, pretty much in the year that I was, you know, because if I'd have been born, <clears throat> you know, in a time before or a time after, um, you know, but I, I had the best of it really because, and I'm so fortunate not just to have been um, witness to the whole evolution of, of music as we know it today, um, you know, as I say, progressing on from the artists I've just mentioned into where we're at today, you know, um, like I say, from the Kinks, you know, uh, to the Beatles, to, you know, to now we've, the Machine Edge Slayers, Metallicas, you you name it, and, and lots of new artists as well that are coming on board. Mm. Uh, when uh, it's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you know, what is your favorite Priest album from from sort of the the eighties? But you know, you've mentioned you get this question a lot, so rather I'll, I'll ask something a little bit differently. Like my, unequivocally, my favorite Priest album is Painkiller, and I know I'm I'm certainly not alone in saying that. It was just um, a huge amount of production, a, a very straightforward sort of album. Uh, were you guys in a mindset of of trying to create this at a time because it's it's noticeably more straightforward and heavier than a lot of the other albums that you had done previously? Yeah, and I have to think about things like that myself. All I can say is our what we did, to my mind, never changed ever. The formula that we worked, you know, was we always did it that way. Myself and Glenn, we would after a tour. Or we would go away, collate ideas separately until we had a reasonable abundance of um, material. And Rob would go away and work on lyrics and song titles and stuff like that. And then myself and Glenn would get together, start piecing everything together, and then we would pull Rob in. And, um, and we, we would put, piece together some songs. Um, and if it was two or three or four or five or whatever the number, then we'd probably have a break and go back and do the same again. And um, so basically, <laughs> we didn't have, there was no kind of um, product control system going on. We just would would do things and put things together. So it was kind of all a bit ad hoc, really. But it was a, it was a form, formula that worked together for us um and so and we did exactly the same thing with um let's say with uh, the with the ripper years you know with the jugulator album it was exactly the same but that was different again wasn't it and it's just the sign of the times what's happening what are your influences what's the, the economy like you know are you, are you getting on well with the family have you had some fallout you know, uh, your mind, a lot depends on what your mindset is uh, is like, I think, when you go into that um, that writing period. And if, let's say, if both myself and Glenn, if we're going through not good times, unhappy times, while, while we're writing over a period of a few months, you know, it can affect us. Or if we're really happy and really up on things and, you know, um, so it's a bit of a lottery. Um, but essentially, the common denominator is the fact that we, our awareness that we are Judas Priest, we're a heavy metal band, and um, and we always, but, but last but not least, is the fact that uh, we were never afraid to diversify a little bit and uh, 
and push the boundaries of what we did in order to make it a successful, you know, and, and get more and more fans on board to, uh, to, to our music. Okay. Um, look, as, as we wind down, KK, we'll, we'll sort of, um, just wrap up with a, a few last questions. One, one of the things I wanted to ask you again, with all this media that you're doing at the moment, um, for, for our listeners, the, the, other guitarist Glenn Tipton recently stepped down from touring duties, and you had said that you were a bit. Um, you expressed that you were a bit um, offended, effectively, that, that you weren't offered to return. Um, considering you had effectively retired, you know why was that important to you to um, to at least have the offer to rejoin the group? Well, I think that um, obviously I had. Myself and Glenn, I just want to square everything up, really, is the fact that, you know, we we were a partnership, you know. But just like a lot of a lot of people, you know, we were different. We, we had a lot of things in common, but we also, also had some differences, you know. And um, But we were a good team. We made it work. I'm extremely grateful to Glenn, as I said before, and all my bandmates. But there, there were things that I wasn't happy with, in particular with Glenn, more so than anyone else, because essentially, you know, myself and Glenn were the driving force, really, uh, behind the band. So we were at the forefront of, you know, uh, a lot of things. Because we were the, we provided the music, this, really. And without the music, you can't put words and lyrics, you know, Without the music, you can't create a song. So we were, you know, we had that relationship. And um, but there were things that went on, you know, business type of things, decision making, you know, how all that worked. Um, that for long, a long time, a long, long time, I wasn't happy with that. You know, Brian Jude it and went through it, and, um, and lots of idiosyncrasies, you know, and I'm sure. Both Glenn and the other guys would say, "Oh yeah, what about you, KK? What about this and what about yeah. that?" You know, like I said, it's nobody's fault, but the ship's still sunk. Um, so, did you, you sort know, of feel that by him stepping out, that that problem would have almost been resolved? Then is that is that almost what you're, you're getting? Yeah, at? yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I like I said, I didn't say anything. I wanted to be discreet because I mean, Glenn's obviously a great artist and performer, and you know, and the fans don't want to hear certain things. But like I say, you know, I mean, Glenn wasn't really a drinker, but he, he used to drink beers before and on stage, and it and it affected me and how I felt, and I felt nervous about the performances, and that was ongoing for too long, you know, uh, not that probably that anyone in the audience would notice, but it was how I felt, so it caused me not to enjoy the performances as much as I should, and towards the end, as things were seemingly slowing down somewhat you know and changing we were getting a lot older it became very very important to me because all of the hard work and sacrifices that you make you know there wasn't a, wasn't that much left to be out there night after night traveling around trains planes and whatever it, it's pretty rigorous as you get older you have to enjoy the concerts you have to enjoy the concerts and the rest of the guys knew my stance my position because they were the same like-minded they knew what the situation was so when glenn was unable to do it anymore i thought the guys would obviously say well you know um kk probably will uh 
be fine to step back in now, you know, so whether I would or not, I, I thought that they would ask the question. And on top of that, the big one is the fact that the consideration for what the fans may or may not have wanted wasn't wasn't considered. And I thought that that was a little bit unfair too, really, you know, that's what, what I think, because I think the fans are entitled, entitled me as a music fan, you know, the fans would, I'm sure they would agree with me, the fans are entitled to have an some kind of voice, you know, in uh, in what they think should happen or not, really. So, like I say, you know, it's um, it's all sensitive areas and stuff, you know, um, and so. But um, the reason I um, put the book together was to, um, as gracefully as I possibly could, just try to explain to everyone, um, answer some unanswered questions. I see things on the internet. Fans are writing on things. Fans are writing things. I'm saying, guys, you are so far off track. It isn't funny. <laughs> you know, things like, well, why didn't KK ask to come back? Why He left. He should have, you know, he could have asked. Well, no, guys, I couldn't have asked because Glenn's replacement was was made before I knew that Glenn had stepped down. So why would the fans say, why? and I read the fans saying, why didn't KK ask? Well, guys, it wasn't, it, it wasn't put on eBay, you know, yeah. <laughs> grab this, grab this while you can. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't that sort of thing. There was no option for me to ask. So what is, um, uh, you know, what, what are your goals moving forward then? If, if the, um, you know, if the priest, chapters truly done and closed then um you know i know that you've got a lot of a lot of other interests including sport and in and, and golf and um you know from whatever you're involved in in a club that you run and some other bands you know what keeps you busy yeah yeah well i'd like to square that up as well really because i have always had my interest you know um all of my life you know and it's not this and it's not that, it's not the other. It's a lot of things, you know, because I love, if we talk about sports, for example, I love uh, snooker, fishing, soccer, you know, tennis. My God, you, you are, it, you are you know. an Englishman, aren't you? <laughs> I, I love all of those. I've actually been fortunate enough to be on a, I've actually been on a tennis court with John McEnroe and so has Glenn. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, and uh, and a lot of people might remember remember Vitus Um So I've always had that, you know. So and and um, and and uh, um, I've you know Judas Priest has, has always been you know uh, the priority, you know, um, whatever I've been going has been going on in my life, including. Dare I say it? I'm going to get hung for this. Girlfriends as well, you know, <laughs> and relationships, relationships. I think the other guys will have to admit this as well. You know that we've made a lot of sacrifices for the band. Uh, you know, not just our expense, but other people's expense also. You know, um, you know, there's times when I wouldn't see my mum for you know like a year going on for you know. So lots of things happen. So when KK leaves the band, it's easy for somebody to say, oh, yeah, he wants to take care of this or he wants to take care of that. But I've always been taking care of things all of my life. It just suits people to say certain things at a certain time just to put, just to shift the onus, 
<laughs> that's all there is to it. Um, but essentially, um, I've got to say, I'm a happy chap because um, I've just discovered Doc and have got back together after 20 <laughs> years. I've been, wa- I've been watching. I've been watching those guys at that Japanese concert they did, and it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. You know. Um, so where I'm coming from or going to with this comment is the fact that, as I've said before, there is no such thing as okay, KK. Now that this is, you know. Uh, there's no Judas Priest no more or this no more you know it's an ever moving feast life mm. you know and especially in the musical world you know in the music world anything can happen at any time yeah well I mean you you left on your own terms, but is there any part of you that feels, um, you know are you a little bit sad or resentful of the fact that the band is just it's it's still going on even though that you know you've made the choice to to sort of port no it was bound to happen it's just the way it has happened you know i think you know should have been different really i I don't think i i think richie should have been allowed to be in his own personal you know and if he likes to play um gibson les pauls then he should go on stage and play those and not be you know encouraged to play flying v's and wear clothes like me and look like me and do all of that. I think that, you know, uh, when Ripper joined the band, we gave him license to be himself. We didn't say, you know, you've got to do this like Rob or that like Rob. So I was, you know, essentially my initial reaction was, uh, you know, that the guys have cloned me. Um, and, um, and, um, and I didn't think that that was, and well, I thought, well, maybe that's, they think it's a good move because the fans, you know, won't miss me. I kind of, in a way, from ten rows back, think I'm still there. And um, <laughs> okay. and, 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 and the fact that my image was used in so much of the publicity for the, the, the upcoming tour, you know, um, maybe that was the what went on. But I think that which is um, such a good uh, player, and uh, you know that I think uh, in his own right um, should be allowed to develop um, himself. But and, and of course, uh, when Glenn stepped down, I didn't see the same thing happening on, on that side of the stage. You know, um, do you think uh, Richie is a um, uh, is an adequate successor to your you know uh, lineage within the band? <clears throat> well, it's absolutely seriously, seriously difficult to replace anybody that's been there for such a long time. If you know what I'm saying. Um, and I understand that it's so difficult because it's not the same person, you know, um, it doesn't matter even if some people and some people do think Ripper uh, has, has got the edge over Rob and is, uh, you know, uh, uh, and can, you know, um, and I can see why he's, his vocals are young, they're strong. When he came into the band, he was tremendous, but the, the tonality and the textures, there's always going to be little things here and there that are not going to be the same. Um, and so for people, people prefer to have the same, you know, but um, but I think that, um, you know, Richie's doing, uh, doing a lot of things at the moment, really. He's not just filling in for me now. He's also playing Glenn solos, and it all seems a bit strange to me. I, I don't really quite understand it. I will say this, Andy Sneak is, I consider Andy a friend. You know, I've been up to Andy's studio. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I've said 
I've said that, you know, from the offset, you know, um, and I do speak with Andy and um, <clears throat> wished him well and all the best. Um, he's a great, and I really liked his band Hal. Well, I only know him as a producer, so I don't actually know him as a as an artist, I suppose. Yeah, and he's been a player for a long time, a massive fan of Judas Priest, massive fan, you know. And you, you couldn't wish to meet a, and I've said this, you know, um, a really nicer guy, you know. Um, but I think Andy would, would have to say, obviously, you know, I mean, you get, uh, you get frontman, lead guitar players, performers, you know, and I've been doing that all my life, you know, and... You know, um, so uh, and so is Glenn. So it, it's kind of it's it's a hard it's it's a tall order to uh, to get people to to step in. <clears throat> um, I'm sure that myself and Richie would have made a pretty good upfront guitar duo, but like I say, um, um, you know, time is moving on, opportunities, you know, um, we'll get fewer and further between, you know, with age things. And um, But the guys are pretty booked up going out with Ozzy. Um, that's going to be, obviously, a killer. You well, know, they're coming down here next year. So downloads finally. Um, so we, we had a festival called Soundwave, which was sort of doing what Download was doing, and they went bust a couple of years ago. And it's taken a few years, but Download is finally coming down under. And so the first one that's coming, I think, is in February down here. And it's Aussie, Priest, Slayer, um, all, all the mainstays, uh, and, and a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, other bands as well. But um, it's the first time, I think, that we've had them down here. Um, yeah, we just went to, we went to Oz with, uh, with Ripper, and I think that was it, really, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, but I, am, I have been talking to some guys in... Uh, Caleb in New Zealand and uh, you know uh, we never made it there but I, I think Priest did on the last tour so that's pretty cool yeah um, and so what what do you plan to do with yourself I mean you, you, you've got the, the the books out you know as I said you're getting a lot of publicity around it you've got a lot of interest um, here, where do you see yourself headed now well <clears throat> you know we're moving into the winter now uh, in the UK uh, I've just relocated home I'm uh, in the throes of putting my uh, all studio together, so I'm going to kind of uh, hibernate away, I think, over the winter months and um, and start playing a little bit more again. And um, I'll consider my options. I'll see how this winter goes, really, um, and to see what I get up to musically. Um, and um, but. At least I've got an opportunity to be a fan again. I get to go to see concerts when I want to. Indeed. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm actually thinking, you know, jumping on a plane and getting out there to see Rip Rock. I've got some things at my house that he was going, he wants, I won't say what it is, some, a few things, but um, he, he really would like to get a hold of some things I've, I've been keeping for him. So uh, so if I, if I get the opportunity, I'll jump on a plane and go and, and, go and see the three tremors. Yes, which is going to be cool. It's a very really different cool. environment. I, you know, we, I had the chance to live in London for a few years, and just being—I um, don't know if you're able to pick up, but I'm Canadian originally. So I'm a Canadian. I'm an expat who lives in Australia. I was living in London, but I, I was amazed while I was living over there. The perception of heavy metal is it's, um, and I'm sure you you got this, but it's not an underground culture by any means. It's very much a lifestyle across Europe where. 
it's it's just a type of music that people listen to and address that they follow. And I found that um, I found that outstanding because it contributes to the accessibility of going to see gigs at very reasonable prices out there. Yeah, that's that's, that's really cool. Yeah, um, happy to hear all of that. <laughs> Uh, well, look, KK, I'll ask you a quick question after we sign off uh, for tonight. But look, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Um, it's look, it's been very enlightening for me. Who's been a fan and, and has listened to the band for for a number of years. And thank you very much, Jess, and obviously to uh, all of the fans. You know, well, thank you very much for your support over the years. You know, uh, unfortunate things have to uh, change because nothing lasts forever, I guess. But um, who's to say that things? you know, can't change before they, you know, um, before the definitive ending, you know. So uh, the main thing is uh, <clears throat> we're all, um, we all um, still have this wonderful, obviously, genre of music that we know and love, and um, and it's still good to go. Like I said, you know, um, I don't know the guys in Dockham very well, but... <laughs> <laughs> Get docking, Every, yeah. everybody, 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 check it out because those old songs, you know, Tooth and Nail and uh, Dream Warriors and all that, all very, all very cool. But that's they're just one of many. So um, you know, there's revitalization and, and there's always hope. I can visualize you now with some sort of alias KK one two three on fanboards, just talking about the docking reunion somewhere as an anonymous. <laughs> all right. Well, well, like I say, just when you think this never going to happen, I would, you know, because those guys get, were on tour with us, you know, quite a few times, and um, and I'm thinking, you know, as me as a musician, I'm thinking those guys should get back together, you know, uh, come to England, so I'm, you know, come and see the show. So hopefully that's going to happen. So as I said before, it just kind of epitomises the fact that. We can all say this today, but, you know, um, there's always hope for tomorrow. Excellent. Um, I'll ask you a couple quick questions, but we'll sign off uh, after this. I really appreciate your time today, KK. Thank you, mate.